Carrie might have saved my life. And and so I have a, a very strong connection to the material because it is such a powerful force in my life of goodness. And, and so much of that is what I'm continuing to learn about it because I know more about Carrie now than, than I did when I was building the film. And the more that I learn, the more my perspective of the show continues to change and evolve and evolve and evolve. Hey, Ivory Tower Boiler Room listeners and true crime friends. You've heard me gush over this incredible woman and her beautiful products. I'm talking about Mandy Made It. Mandy makes customized and original crochet and cut goods. They are the perfect, unique, one-of-a-kind gift for literally anyone in your life. And she makes incredible home decor. I still have my pumpkins that I put out every fall. I just love them. Check her out on Instagram at M-A-N-D-E-E Made It or search Mandy Made It on Facebook. To order, just slide into her DMs. And if you mention the Ivory Tower Boiler Room, you will receive a free personalized gift with your first order. So... Go on Instagram and look up at Mandy Made It, and Mandy is spelled M-A-N-D-E-E. Again, her handle is at Mandy Made It, Mandy spelled M-A-N-D-E-E, and order today. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to part two of the Carrie Musical extravaganza, I'll call it. If you haven't listened to part one, uh, head over to our part one episode because you're missing out on how Eric first learned about Carrie the Musical, how he got in touch with the cast, um, our act one analysis of Debbie Allen's intensive choreography. And you need to know all of the historical foundation because we're now in part two. And I had just ended by asking Eric, how the cast now responds after 35 years of Carrie the Musical being out in the universe. So here you go, everyone. Enjoy part two. I know you've talked to almost every living cast member. No, that's not true. No, no. But, but I've talked to I've talked to um to several of them, but I haven't I haven't I haven't had a party with, <laughs> with all of them. But uh, so, but um but but no, I've talked um extensively with Lindsay, but I mean actually Lindsay and I haven't uh, talked extensively about Carrie, but we have talked about what the master cut means to her. And I don't, I don't want to um, go into to too much detail about that because it is personal, but what I have discovered um, in conversation is that the film has made it possible for, for people who were involved with that production to 
let go of a narrative that has haunted it for 34 years, which is biggest all-time flop ever. You can't have a conversation about Carrie without having the flop conversation. I want to have a conversation about Athena. And I want to like, you know, I want to have a conversation about the production and what it's doing. And people want to talk about five performances. And and uh I hear parrot parroted opinions. Um, from that they've read somewhere. And and what makes me insane are people who don't have opinions of their own. They just say what other people have said and you know you're hearing. It's like, well, I've been hearing that and that and that for years. And it's like, do you, do you got anything new? Do you got anything fresh? Um, and the film is presented without editorializing. Now, clearly it's built and created by somebody who deeply loves the show but there's nowhere in it that prefaces its run um or the reviews or what anyone had to say about it or anything like that it is simply the show and the show only on the show's terms and when you look at it from that perspective things change a bit and what i have um and this is the the blessing of far beyond my wildest expectations of this occurring but the blessing of the film is that originally this was something that I ended up doing for myself and it was a project that I began because I wanted to learn how to edit and I figured that the easiest way the 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 hardest way to learn how to edit would be dealing with choreography so it started with like these little projects and then it grew and grew and grew. And then suddenly I was doing this thing and I was about halfway through it, really into it, really excited about it. Um, had already decided I was going to release it publicly. And then I had this moment where um, any confidence that I had in myself or in it just disappeared. And I thought, well, this is going to be a disaster and I'm going to be a laughing stock and I'm not going to release this. Maybe I'll finish it for me, but I'm not letting anyone see it. And um, and that was a really powerful five minutes in my life, because within the same five minutes of me deciding I'm going to stop doing this thing that I love doing with this piece of art that I love so much because I'm so afraid of what other people think. That's when it occurred to me a question. How often are decisions in my life made based on what I think other people want and think and need from me? And the answer was everything, absolutely everything. And upon the realization of that, it's a heavy realization to realize that you're living your life for other people. And, and usually they're the wrong people, the wrong people. And, um, oh, and that's when I was like, well, screw this. And, and I finished it and I was very happy with it. I set it free into the world. And then very quickly, it stopped being about me. And what it ended up becoming was a, a force of healing, um, a, a uh, closure. It, it's offered closure. It has made it possible for people to look at their work and see the show they did. And that's it. And, and so it's not about me at all anymore. And that's, that's exactly as it should be. And I mean, that's when I discovered, oh, when I'm actually doing something purely because I I must, um, it, it seems like good things come from that. So it was, a, it was a very hard one lesson that it took me several years to get to a place where I was like, fuck everything. 
and 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 I've been a very happy person ever since. Carrie might have saved my life. And and so I have a, a very strong connection to the material because it is such a powerful force in my life of goodness. And and so much of that is what I'm continuing to learn about it. Because I know more about Carrie now than than I did when I was building the film. And the more that I learn, the more my perspective of the show continues to change and evolve and evolve and evolve. And um, and that's why I think that it's wonderful that Carrie's power isn't defined. Carrie's an X-Men. <laughs> Carrie is uh, Carrie belongs in some special school. Carrie can make things move. She can set things on fire. Um, there, there's a really fantastic moment in And Eva's Week when um, Carrie's mother shoves her into the basement to to pray for her sins. And once that happens, a burst of flames comes out of the, the wall of the house. And, uh, well, what does that mean? And is that an omen? Is she foreseeing something? Or is she remembering something? Because who is Carrie's father? So now we go back into the Greek mythology of all of it. And... And I mean, Carrie, okay, so like, gotta get a little look into my notes here. Um, well, and if I just may jump in, Eric, like, I love this, like, going into the Greek mythology. I mean, it also, you know, I think, yes, Carrie, her getting her period, that's the type of fairy tale coming of age, like, oh, okay, now she's a woman. Is she going to find her Prince Charming? I mean, that's where the fairy tale would start to try to like add in the layers of adolescence for women. But instead, like you're saying, there's actually something even stronger, which is her finding agency, but her springing up out of um, almost Venus rising from the foam that we don't know her father. There's so many unanswered questions of her power. She's a nothos. She's a bastard. And, um, and there were two kinds of nothos in ancient Greek, and and I think that she was the first one, which is a uh, um, a metrisinoi, and I, I forgive me if I screw that up, but it's a child born to a citizen of Athens and a non-citizen, um, and uh, that means that the mother is a foreigner. Margaret's a foreigner. Margaret does not belong in this world, and those children, regardless of who the father was, were more often than not frowned upon picked around. They were the outcasts. Um, she was a mixed blood, um, illegitimate child, and uh, she was stigmatized. And um, But Margaret sings, oh, Lord, I've seen this power before. What is she talking about? And and that's, that's in Pitchford's lyrics. That's not Terry Hands. What is she talking about? And so if we take it back into Terry Hands' vision of it, was Carrie the daughter of a god? Was Carrie, like, where did Margaret see this power before? And um, sometimes Greek gods would marry humans. Sometimes if they didn't marry them, they fell in love with humans. But usually they seduced or raped them without marrying them. Okay? So was, fairies, was, was Carrie's father Prometheus? Or was he Hephaestus? They were both fire gods. What are these flames? Yeah. Well, and of course... um. Margaret, I mean, we see it definitely from the source material with King, but she is traumatized. I mean, the re religious, not to give her, there's not an out for her, 
but the religious zealot in her comes from was she assaulted, which I think we're supposed to think, yes, there was some kind of abuse that Margaret faced that now the religious zealot evangelicalism is coming from her not working through trauma. But now how is she um, creating, how is she bringing Carrie into this trauma? It's a trauma bond she's trying to create, but unfortunately... Carrie is not allowed to grow into her own. Like she has to conform to Margaret's vision of her, of protecting Carrie, of not having men, you know, seduce Carrie or Carrie to um, fall into a type of abuse. But yeah, I don't know. Margaret's always fascinated me with that because there's so much psychological layers that she's, dealing with well and as it's presented when when margaret and carrie's home first appears in the production it it's it's a floor and a wall mm -hmm. and it's a raft it's a raft in the middle of all of this mm -hmm. the two of them are not they do not live in this world it's a wooden floor and wooden planks for walls and it has no identity in connection whatsoever to anything else we see in the show. This is a different world. And that is the underworld in a way. Well, yeah, it's um, but one of the things that I find so masterful, not only in the staging, but in the writing is that the. The depiction of an abusive relationship in Carrie, the, the this musical, most especially this production of it is perfect it's perfect so we have the violence in and was weak we have the assault we have the the physical harm done and then the next time we see them we have this this heart-wrenching moment of margaret begging carrie to forgive her for beating her up and explaining you're the only one we only have each other i'm the only one who will ever love you the way that i love you and carrie giving into it and saying yes you, you're it you're my world you're the and that's that's the, and it's 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 an, evening prayers is a masterpiece of musical theater writing and of of storytelling because everything that that anyone needs to know about how an abuser lures the victim back into the web is all written into that song um and then during the destruction um Carrie becomes her mother. Carrie begins a reprise of And Eve was Weak. God has seen your sinning, just beginning. Pray for your damnation. Um, pray for your um, salvation from damnation. Pray or he will burn you. He will burn you. Everything that Margaret sang to her when she was beating her up after she had her first period, she is singing to the victims that she is murdering at the uh, at the prom. Prom's a whole other thing we're going to get to. But the the point being is that the abused becomes the abuser. Hi, this is Andrew. So as some of you might know, I've been such a fan of the Gay and Lesbian Review by monthly magazine of history, culture, and politics that publishes essays in a wide range of disciplines, as well as a slew of reviews of books, plays, and movies. 
and a number of special features, such as artist profiles and the popular art memo column. Did you know we actually had two of the writers on the Ivory Tower Boiler Room podcast, Ignacio Darnad and Vernon Rosario? So if you haven't, make sure you listen to those episodes. Each GNLR issue brings you consistently intelligent, lively, thought-provoking articles focused on a unifying theme and brings together the leading minds on the topic. You won't find a lot about the latest dating fads or fashion trends, though you might find articles about online dating as a social phenomenon, like Grindr, which I have some experience with, or the gay influence on 20th century fashion. Now, for a special offer, when you subscribe to the GNLR, you'll receive a free copy with any print or digital subscription. That's seven instead of six. Visit glreview.org. That's G-L-R-E-V-I-E-W.org. Click subscribe and enter promo code ITBR for your free issue. And as an added bonus, you'll receive online access to all archived issues of the magazine. Enjoy your reading. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We have a full cycle of transformation that Carrie experiences from going from this to this to the, where it's, it's whatever she was evolving into, whatever majestic godlike creature has been destroyed. And now all that's been unleashed is wrath and hatred. Well, in the line of thank, I mean, it's so profound, Eric, because the line between abuser and abused is while a cycle gets repeated is the strength of the Carrie narrative because we also get that with Chris. I mean, in the in the book, you get more about Chris's abuse she faces in her life, but it's we need any of that here. <laughs> we don't need any of that here. Because none of that's here. None of that's here. No. But I do think we have Chris obviously um is on this path of vengeance and revenge, which the only way you would want to go through that act of wrath is because um, you need to take out some other anger from another source. It's not from Carrie herself that Chris feels so. In my interpretation, Carrie has done, has not... Um, has caused a wedge with Chris not going to the prom, but is it because Chris has now had her friend Sue turn her back on her and Sue now is aligning with Carrie? Or is there something even more? Is it that um, Billy even doesn't really understand why Chris wants to go through this revenge plot? It's, it's like, has Chris sold her soul to the devil and now has made a pact and she can't go back on it? I mean, there's a lot of ideas about revenge in this musical that constantly um, 
you know, how closely is Chris related to Margaret is a question I've always had. Like, are they both, um, is there acts of evil in the same sphere or, you know, can we say, oh, Chris is just, um, she didn't expect it to get that far with the pig's blood, which of course is such a humiliating act. But Margaret is creating a home of verbal and physical abuse. I mean, how closely do you think Chris and Margaret are in this? Uh, Chris is Kakia. And and Kakia is in Greek mythology. She was uh, mythology. She was the goddess of vice and immorality. She was depicted as vain, heavily made up, dressed in revealing clothes, and uh, she was the seductress. She was the one who uh, lured people to do evil, and um, and her opposite was Areti, and that's Sue. And Sue is the goddess of virtue, excellence, goodness, and valor. Um, and she was depicted as a fair woman of high bearing, dressed in white. And um, and what's interesting is the the Heracles story, because that's where the two of them really kind of like butt heads together. And um, and Tommy and Billy, I think, are a splitting of one person. So in the Heracles story, he gets to the point where he's um, um, gone from boyhood into adolescence where he must choose what kind of a person he's going to be. Is he going to choose um, virtue or vice? And during that period of time, um, Kakia approaches him, um, approaches him, calls herself happiness, and promises them this life of luxury uh, filled with ecstasy and indulgence, and he'll never have to work, and any kind of work that is done will be done by other people, and he will reap the fruits of that. And um, and serving her path is to please her through lust and impropriety. And that scans for Billy. Um, and then um, Arity spoke to Heracles honestly um, and hoped that, she, that he would choose the high and noble path. And she warned him that the gods give nothing to a man without toil and effort. If, if he wants the love of friends, he must do good to his friends. If he wants honor from the city, he must aid in that city. It, um, and um, if he wants to serve and train his body, he must toil and sweat. And serving her path is to serve the ways of dignity, kindness, and goodwill to mankind. And that scans completely for Tommy. And so what we have here is a figure of what would Tommy be if he went here and what would Billy be if he went here? And so there, it, I told you it's dense, it's dense, but it makes sense. And because these are archetypes, um, they they criticize them for not being fully fleshed out characters, et cetera, and so forth. They don't need to be, they're archetypes. They signify goodness and evil. And do me a favor, it does such a wonderful job of showing yes. these, opposite archetype slash binaries slash but i would say they do doubt themselves especially sue she doubts her choices because she is falling for bullying carrie at the beginning and then goes through this well, arc that's the thing during n in the opening number all of the girls are doing the exact same thing they are all doing the exact same thing they are the tribe until chris bursts forth and does her solo and only then are the other girls given, and in the choreography, 
At that point, the girls break free and they're all doing individual things. They're all doing their own thing. And they're only doing that because Chris has given them permission. Sue is an unidentified member of the tribe until she feels remorse for what happens to Carrie. Until then, she's just another one of those, the, those people. It isn't until she actually decides to have an identity of her own and make choices of her own that are not bound to what her leader says that she becomes a person. Yeah, and she really doesn't get her solo moments until Don't Waste the Moon, which is where she starts to, like you're saying, Eric, second guess her choices. I mean, Dream On, I've always found is such an, well, the scenery in Dream On, Dream On, I still can't believe how they moved the set that way with the showers. But um, I love what you're saying because even with Dream On, all of the girls are still so cohesive with there's sections in that song. There's not really a standout singer in Dream On. It's like, um, I did this, he called me, he didn't, I wanted, I didn't. And and there's there's judgment um, uh, against uh, this kind of uh, language in the theater where, where girls are pining over boys as if that's not a real thing, as if teenage, as if teenage boys aren't talking about girls all the time. And, um, um, and it, it's it's something that was revised in the um, the title number where they they removed the the section of Carrie dreaming about a boy. Well, she's sixteen years old. Of course, she's dreaming about a boy. That's what sixteen year old girls do. I, that's what sixteen year old. That's what I did when I was sixteen. I dreamt about boys. Um, well, and I would say the nineteen eighty eight, in my opinion, has a lot of female um, empowering. Um, Parts in the musical theater world. I mean, this, yes, are, do I love Billy and Tommy? Yes, I like their parts, but I wouldn't say that Billy, I would say Chris and Sue definitely are featured more definitely than Billy and Tommy are. Well, as the kids would say today, um, Chris and Sue are girl bosses. They are in charge. They know what they want. Who they are and they are making it happen and they are and, and do me a favor is fascinating because it's all about sex it's all about sex i will have sex with you if you do this and it's coming from both ends it's coming from sue and tommy now sue and tommy are the, like the la, 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 la about it but if you look at the choreography and do me a favor once again we have this tribal thing this is where debbie allen and terry hands really merge together so magnificently all the kids in Do Me a Favor are doing the same thing. The only people who break from this are Tommy, Billy, Sue, and Chris. That's it. Yeah, there's a huge opening of Do Me a Favor of just instrumental that I always find fascinating where everyone is part of this cohesive tribe until the foursome breaks out from them doing their solos. And I mean, talk about a solo. Gene Anthony, right? I love like all of the sass and choreography he's giving as Charlotte is singing. And I mean, so does uh, Billy. Like the um, men are complimenting in the back. They're dancing as the women are giving their solos. So yeah, so interesting. But why do you think, I have to go there. I mean, why do you think there is such this discussion about Terry and Debbie Allen having friction i mean because i agree with you it does blend so well like why is the narrative then 
that they were at odds, that there was this parting. They couldn't understand each other's vision because you're giving us that reparative analysis of, no, this was all part of the choreography was strengthening the system of Terry Hand's directorial vision. I can only speak to what Debbie Allen says in interviews, and I know in interviews we're on our best behavior and and all is well and good. Um, but she spoke of Terry um, with the sense of she would choreograph the hell out of something and he would come to her and say, okay, it's getting close. And, and she's like, what are you talking about? This is amazing. And he's like, it's like, it's not there yet. I need more. I need more. Um, and uh, she was on an interview show where she uh, she spoke with him very respectfully and said, but she's a tough choreographer. She doesn't fuck around. She gets the job done. She's very hard. And um, and she referred to Terry and she said, and well, I've, I've got a I'm, I'm paraphrasing. It was like, I've got a, a good teammate in Terry hands because he's pretty tough. And so were there people who are passionate and good at their work, especially in an artistic environment, are going to butt heads. It's going to happen to the extent of how that, where that went or what that was. I wasn't there and I can't say, um, because for me, it's all hearsay. Um, I haven't spoken with, with Debbie Allen. Um, and, and unfortunately we can't speak with Terry hands. Um, and, uh, Terry stopped talking about Carrie when it closed because the, um, the situation humiliated him and the way he was spoken of in the American press was horrible. Um, and he became the Harry guy, the director of the worst flop ever in Broadway history. And I mean, I'm telling you, man, I have seen some shows that can't hold a candle to carry that, you know, are selling 500, $600 a seat. So, you know, it's all subjective. Um, but you're right. There was this shame. And I will say, I haven't found any recent discussion that Debbie Allen has about Carrie, which I think is also that same feeling that you're attached to um, having to go into this flop narrative, which you've already mentioned. But it's something I want to get us, you know, into is this healing that the master cut film you've done, you've talked about how Lindsay not revealing her private conversations. Of course, I wouldn't want you to do that, but of how there's been a healing with the cast and the creative team who's seen it. And I've heard them talk about that too on interviews. Recently on Stars in the House with Seth Rudetsky, I loved that. Betty came back, Charlotte, uh, Sally Ann Triplett and uh, Lindsay. And they said like now they're able to heal, not only heal, it's beyond healing. They're able to appreciate the work they've done. Hi, this is Andrew, and I'm interrupting what I know is an enthralling interview because I want you all to know that we are sponsored by Broadview Press. And if you don't know, Broadview Press is an independent academic publisher who publishes books covering topics like English studies, writing, philosophy, history, gender studies, and every season on the podcast, I interview one of the Broadview Press authors. So for the fall, we had Ann Stevens on to talk about literary theory and criticism. She played a Wizard of Oz literary game with us. She talked about why Bridgerton actually involves literary theory. So does Fifty Shades of Grey. 
who knew? Um, and also, we just had on Jeffrey Weinstock, who wrote the first ever pop culture analysis book. So, you know, I am all things a lover of pop culture, especially my Hollywood topics, Real Housewives, the list goes on and on. And he also wrote the book called The Mad Scientist's Guide to Composition, where he's writing a book teaching students about how to write rhetorical strategies, but it's all around this metaphor of being in the mad scientist laboratory, because as you'll learn when you hear our episode with Jeffrey, he is a gothic and horror fanatic. And I mean that in all the best ways possible. So you don't want to miss Broadview Press's exclusive discount because you're listening to the podcast. All of you get an automatic 20% off. Use the code Ivory Tower for 20% off site-wide on all of their books. So our in our show notes, we have a link to Broadview Press. Make sure you click the link, put in Ivory Tower, and you're going to get 20% off your order. So enjoy your reading, everyone. Because I heard you include Charlotte's moment in your intermission. I love how Eric puts in like the video footage of the interviews from intermission documentary. Yeah. An intermission documentary in the master cut. And it's like seven minutes to go. I love that countdown. And Charlotte says, this is the first musical I've been in where I've loved every number. Like you can see how passionate she is and the whole cast, Betty about how much she's gone into the character of Margaret. I remember Betty talking about how Debbie whooped her into shape with these wind sprints. And like you said, it is such a technical piece with Margaret fit the physicality and um, how much they loved the work. And I remember Betty on closing night when it, they found out it was closing night and you said it was the wool pulling over their eyes, but how she made this whole speech to the cast about, you know, be proud of the work you've done. Like we're trying to really make, them know that this is not on them because so many of them were young, but especially Lindsay being so young and 17 that, you know, she had to be um, to not take on that. This is anything to do with your talents. And yeah, well, I, I think that um, the, the stars in the house thing happened in 2020. And, um, and I, I think that it's, um, it's it's wonderful to be able to like think on the memories of something and to start reframing that and and that's that's exciting and I think that um, whatever was beginning there came to climax with the master cut um, because I mean that's that's the beauty of it you have to think you have to think about Lindsay let's talk about Lindsay Lindsay was seventeen years old. And they were all young. They were all babies. Um, but she was the baby in the cast, 17 years old, and had the rug pulled out from under her, just like that. And um, um, as they all did, all the kids from England had to go back to where they lived, pack up their clothes, and leave the next morning. Sally Ann had a boat on the Hudson River. I remember that story because it is so fascinating. She's like, I have to now go back to England. And, you know... Uh, somehow leave this boat that I've now rented. Yeah. 
I yeah, I understand that uh, that uh, Sally had some some parties on that boat, uh, but um, that that I I wish that I had been able to go to. That's <laughs> a really good time. Um, but imagine what that does to a person because they're that's not allowed anymore. Shows aren't allowed to close like that anymore. Um, they give closing notices and then they play the rest of their run. And uh, which I think is, is fantastic because we're not going to allow anyone to traumatize these people ever again in that horrible way that the glory days opened and closed in the night in the, the 2000s. And I believe that's the reason why some, some rule was instated where we can, we can't do this to these people. Um, but then you have this cult following that um, that had already begun. It had already begun. Like the, when the show was in previews, the cult following had begun. Um, with, I will say, with a very gay male um, queer audience, I think that's important to note that there was a lot of queer energy around Carrie. Um, well, yeah, Carrie's a queer savior. Um, but... The um, the narrative of Carrie, like I said, even though there's this enormous facet of people who love it, who love it now, young people now are discovering it and continue to discover it. Every generation of theater kids discovers it and discovers it. And a lot of those theater kids are the are the kids who aren't going to get cast as Prince Charming and Snow White. They're not the your usual cookie cutter, um, I'm a, a, you know, whatever. And I mean, you know, those are great people too. I'm not talking down on that, but I'm saying that the kinds of kids who find Carrie are the ones who, who don't feel seen. They don't feel seen by their teachers. They don't feel seen by um, by society. And there's this, this misfit show that is misunderstood yeah i found it when i was being immensely bullied in middle school and it was when i was also so passionate in musical theater so exactly eric i understand this is it's deep rooted with how people discover the carry narrative and how they latch onto it um there are those people and then you know people like me who want to talk about the show they want to talk about Ralph Coltai's design. They want to talk about Terry Han's lighting. They want to talk about what it all means. They want to have that conversation. I'm 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 one of uh, I, I'm I, I'm an older version of something that continues on behind um, behind me and will continue and will continue and will continue. And uh, oh yeah, suggesting to the yeah. Um, but then there's the flop narrative. So imagine having the rug pulled out from under you bullying traumatized narrative of Lindsay literally this almost meta replication of what Carrie goes through now right. onto Lindsay. Well and a book comes out in 1992 or something like that that has Lindsay's person slapped on the cover. Um and and like and they call it not since Carrie and it's filled with with really damning editorializing that I've heard parroted back at me again and again and again. And Ken Mendelbaum's book is a joy. It's a joy, but it has become a kind of a, a thorn in the argument for Carrie because people read that and they decide from that, that's what the show is. And well, that's not very fair. And well, and also can't, I think now 
we can see you could have quote unquote a really short lasting musical, but that doesn't mean it's not full of the nostalgia, the love, the passion, the joy that you can love something that closed so soon that it doesn't have to be like a flop can have an uplifting message of, Oh, we have an audience for something that was a flop. Like it doesn't have to have the negative baggage. Well, now, Carrie isn't a flop. Yeah. LGBT stories are universal, but each one speaks to the individual heart and soul of the writer telling it. Do you have a story to tell? Have you been moved by an LGBT book, film, painting, television show, or other form of media? If so, the Gay and Lesbian Review wants to hear from you. The GNLR believes in bringing awareness to queer art and artists through reviews, commentary, and thought pieces in which the author relates their personal lives to a particular piece of art, a novel, a movie, or what have you. In addition to the articles published in the print magazine, the GNLR also publishes articles on its blog, as well as personal essays on its popular Here's My Story section. This allows people like you to share their own experiences with our readers. To learn more about submitting either to the print or the online edition of the GNLR, visit georeview.org. That's G-L-R-E-V-I-E-W dot O-R-G. And scroll down to the bottom of the page to find a link to their writer's guidelines. If you have questions, email me at stephen.hemrick at georeview.org. The GNLR can't wait to see what you have to say. Do you have a queer fascination with classic films? Ever wish you'd be transported back to that golden age of cinema as if you're in the movies themselves? Hi. My name is Christian Garcia, and I am the host of that old gay classic cinema. Join my friends and I as we travel back in time to that classic age of film and peel back the layers of how these films transformed our view behind the camera and into the lens of cinema. Make sure to follow my Instagram at that old gay classic cinema, and I'll be sure to save you a seat at our next showing. See you there. It's nearly 35 years later, and we're sitting here talking about Carrie from 1988. Yeah, that's not something you forget. A flop is usually something not on our radar. There are shows that that ran for two, three, four, five years that people have completely forgotten, completely forgotten, and, and never will remember. What are they? I'm just kidding. I don't know. I don't know. Um, Like, I mean, you know, I've got a big thing of Follies over here. Follies did not win Best Musical. What did? Wait, the year that Follies actually came out? Yeah. I don't know. I do because I'm a weirdo. It's Two Gentlemen of Verona. But most people couldn't tell you that unless they're, you know, really into their stuff like me, which, I mean, yeah, there are plenty who are. But but we don't remember Gentlemen of Verona. We don't talk about Gentlemen of Verona. We don't do Gentlemen of Verona. We're going to have like a listener who's like, but I'm a Gentleman of Verona. That's great. Come into my our comments. Please, please tell me about Gentlemen of Verona. But we don't talk about that. We talk about follies. I but yeah, back to Lindsay. Like, because Lindsay, her career, I mean, 
if you don't know, she, well, Eric does, but for everyone out there and Lindsay, if you're listening, I absolutely love not only, well, your Carrie is an incredible portrayal and interpretation, but also your Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat narrator, um, which was in the 90s. Was it the late 90s when she is the narrator in Joseph? The mid 90s. She was Eponine before that. She she went from, she it wasn't soon after Carrie that Cameron McIntosh uh, put her in Les Mis. And, um, and then she had great success as a narrator in Joseph, which she's just finished reprising. She, she did it in the West end and then she's just finished a tour of it. And she was amazing. Oh my God. She's, and it, it's, it's so exciting to see Lindsay like at, at, you know, full velocity and a completely different genre and a completely different character where she's so alive and vibrant and there's just so much going on when, when I'm, you know, very used to, to watching her being picked around by people for two hours and then murdering them all. Um, well, and the cast, I think it's so important to note that the strength of this cast is I think what definitely is why we keep turning to it because these were, innovative cutting edge performers i mean betty was very well known um darlene love was very well known um but charlotte i saw her a few years ago in pippin so wonderful as Fastrada. she's in chicago as roxy all the time i just saw her in chicago a couple of months ago and oh my God, she's so good she's so she's spellbinding yeah sally ann has been in um anything goes and so many productions in the west end thing is like they they haven't stopped like Lindsay hasn't stopped in in 35 years she's had a glorious stage career which is really difficult to have they all have betty's in law and order svu i'm pretty sure or one of the tv shows betty's having a good time with mariska she's having a really good time with mariska i believe um and does concerts still i mean but i think all of that's to say is um these are at the top, they're at the top of their, um, they know the craft. Like everyone who was in that musical, I mean, sadly, Gene Anthony Ray, sadly did not um, live a while after the, well, he lived until the late 90s. I'm trying to remember. We lost, we lost Paul Jingle a few years ago too. Yeah. But that, these were all, I mean, Gene Anthony Ray's dance, dancing was so masterful and, um, I mean, Darlene Love is a uh, famous like R&B. I mean, she's always known for her holiday Christmas songs. Of course. She'll be on The View again for the holidays. I want to talk about Miss Gardner. Um, and, and what Darlene brought to Miss Gardner was, was such authority. And she was able to turn that on its head into such warmth. And... And that interpretation of it really lends itself to what I believe Miss Gardner is. And I believe that Miss Gardner is Athena. She represents Athena. And uh, Athena was the immortal go goddess who could not die. So if that's true, then Miss Gardner survives. Um, but she was one of the most intelligent and wisest of the Greek gods. And she was also good at war strategy. So we've got the training and giving heroes courage. And what is that but an unsuspecting heart, but her instilling Carrie with courage. But here's another thing that's really interesting is the idea of this prom, right? A prom is an American tradition, but 
prom and Carrie is just like there's no high school. We're calling a, we're calling something the prom that isn't really the prom. It's an event. Yeah. Well, this is where everyone who's listening go over to Eric doesn't know this, but this is all spontaneous and improvised. But go over to patreon.com slash ivory tower boiler room to hear about the prom because Eric's going to dissect the prom with me and also open up about anything he's heard, um, you know, from Lindsay or Charlotte or Betty, like just conversations he's had about the master cut. So, okay, we're going to get into the prom on the Ivory Tower Boiler Room Cafe. Okay, so how could I do this to all of you? There's a bonus episode, and what have we not talked about? Oh, I know. Prom. Which, if you know Carrie, the prom is the pinnacle moment of the musical. So, we are about to go into an over 30-minute bonus episode about how the prom scene was displayed, how the blood actually um, was thrown on Carrie, does that actually matter or not? How it was imagined on the stage? And Eric actually opens up about the conversations he's had with Lindsay, with Betty, with Charlotte, the response that has happened with um, all in the Carrie musical universe. So head to our Patreon, Ivory Tower Boiler Room Cafe, to listen to our bonus episode or watch it. It's a video. Uh, so... Patreon.com slash Ivory Tower Boiler Room, $5 a month. See you all there. Thank you so much for listening to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. This is Andrew Rimby. I really hope you follow us on social media because that's where you get to see all of the exciting video clips, teasers, and humorous moments. So follow us on TikTok and Instagram at Ivory Tower Boiler Room. And on our Twitter, at Ivory Boiler Room. I hope you all are following the Ivory Tower Boiler Room Cafe and become a member for only $5. You get all of our interviews and episodes ad-free. You also get to watch the video interviews. You get to see my lovely face and the guest's lovely face. And you get access to all the bonus episodes. So Dr. Jake Newsom talking about the history of the Pink Triangle. Zach Topping talking about being an army vet and what that meant when he wrote a war novel and a dystopian novel. You get to hear Gregory Maguire's breaking news about the Wicked movie musical. Jesse Green talking about Richard Rogers and Oscar Hammerstein and what did Stephen Sondheim actually think about Rogers and Hammerstein. So head to patreon.com slash ivory tower boiler room. Please, please provide me an iced coffee. I would love it because I need to stay up to do all these edits. So yeah, see you all in the Ivory Tower Boiler Room Cafe. And here is Mary DePippi from True Crime and Academia. Hi, everyone. I am Mary DePippi. As Andrew said, I am the host of True Crime and Academia. True Crime and Academia airs on Fridays at 730. Now to find all things True Crime and Academia, you can follow me on Instagram and TikTok at True Crime and Academia or on Twitter at TC and Academia because, well, they hate it when you have too many characters. Like I said, True Crime and Academia airs on Fridays at 730s. 
But if you are a subscriber, you get a bonus episode. That's right. A whole episode just to yourselves that no one else gets to hear. Like I do a deep dive on the case of JonBenet Ramsey. I deep dive Casey Anthony. We talk about the history of the lobotomy. And most recently, we talked about the Night Stalker himself, Richard Ramirez. So if you want to access all of that extra wonderful content, go to patreon.com slash ivory tower boiler room. And like Andrew said, if you could just please buy us a nice coffee, that would that would be great. That would be really, yes. really great. It would be great. We appreciate it. We also interact with all of you on Patreon. So ask us your insightful questions. We will answer them for you. And we want to thank our spring 23 interns, Andrea, Caitlin, Rosie, and Sheila. Thank you so much. And we can't wait to see you all back again in the ivory tower boiler room. Happy winter, everyone. As a Long Islander, I was so excited when I finally found a med spa that totally matched everything I wanted. I was looking for a good facial place, a good place that had skin products. And guess what? In my hometown now of Port Jeff Village, there is Skin Med Spa. And I'm here with the owner, Lauren, who's going to explain to you all what kinds of services are offered, products that are offered, and you know why you should come to Skin Med Spa if you're in the Long Island or New York City area. Well, we wanted to open up a place that was offering all holistic natural treatments that were really providing results driven, um, where someone could come in, maybe struggling with acne and has tried so many different products and they couldn't find what was right for them. So we customize all treatments to really help you dive into your skincare goals, whether it's anti-aging rejuvenation, like I said, acne, just to help with cellular turnover, focus on building healthy skin. Um, we have two locations. We have Skin Med Spa and Body right here in Port Jeff Village. And again, we focus on all natural plant-based skincare. We'll help you design a good custom skincare line for you. And we'll help you find the right treatments, whatever your skin needs. Yeah. So Lauren and Sarah, they know that I get a cupping here. I get hydrofacials with Rosie. I get jet peel facials with Lauren. Everything here is so wonderfully curated, like Lauren said. And there's just any kind of product. Oh, I know there's now laser hair removal. I mean, there's always a new product being offered. So everyone out there who's listening, if they want to come to Skin Med Spa in Port Jeff Village, how can they find you and get in touch? We're really active on social media. So at Skin Med Spa PJ on Instagram, that's the best way you could probably find us because we really try to post daily updates of our clients and who's coming in and the treatments that we're doing. Um, and of course, on our website, there's always links to how to book an appointment. But everything we do when you call us, that's always the best way. We answer the phone and we'll talk forever and help you find whatever is perfect for you. Okay, well, hopefully Lauren gets to meet you all. Say that you heard Skin Med Spa's ad on the Ivory Tower Boiler Room, and maybe I'll see you all here. Okay. Good. Bye. Thank you.